I decided to do something just a little bit different today because of the fact that I felt comfortable that there were going to probably be as many people watching online as there were sitting in here this morning. And so I decided just to move over here closer to give the benefit to our online group of being able to see the slides a little bit better as well. I've titled today's message, Reassurance and Guidance, and we're just we're continuing this series of sermons through the letters of John, looking for ways that we can find hope living in a world that is shaken. And uh, so I don't want to catch you off guard. So listen real carefully. Interestingly and surprisingly, though John will say specifically that God is love twice in this first letter of John, you understand, don't you, that there are some things that God hates? A God of love. And yet there are things that God hates. Proverbs chapter 6, verses 16 through 19. There are six things that the Lord hates. Seven that are an abomination. You hear that? Six things that the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, and hands that shed innocent blood, a wicked heart that devises wicked plans, feet that make haste to run to evil, a false witness who breathes out lies, and one who sows discord among brothers. Now, there is also a particular love that God hates. It's a love for the world. James 4.4 teaches us not even to make friends with the world. For in so doing, we welcome the enemy of God. And in our text for today, 1 John 2, 12-17, John's going to teach us not to love the world. For if one does, the love of God is not in that person. Now, we've already looked at how John gives us three reasons why he has written this letter. Using a very clear purpose statement. He says, we or I are writing so that. Chapter 1, verse 4, so that our joy may be complete. Chapter 2, verse 1, so that you may not sin. And again, chapter 5, 13, that I read as our call to worship, he wants you to make sure that you know that an important part, purpose for his writing is so that we may know that we have eternal life. But it should go without saying, that another reason that John is writing is that false teachers has, had arisen within the church. Now next Sunday, we're going to see that the opponents, those false teachers that were people that went out from us, he says in chapter 2 verse 19, uh, people that were trying to deceive them, verse 26 of chapter 2, 
He's going to tell us that they were a part of, of the fellowship. They were believers. But now, they're the opponents. And they were people who had forsaken the basic essentials of the Christian faith. It appears that this group no longer believed that Jesus came as a human being. They weren't doubting that he was seen, but they had been swept up in the early stages of what later became known as Gnosticism. And the idea was that anything spiritual couldn't be physical. And so Jesus just appeared to be human, just appeared to be flesh. They also rejected the authority of Jesus' commands. They didn't believe they were sinful. They were above that. They abandoned the idea of salvation through the work of Christ. They didn't even seem, apparently they didn't even love one another. And righteous conduct, for them, that wasn't a requirement for fellowship with God. They resisted the authority of John the Apostle. And their loss of faith kind of reveals the love of the world and how it had attacked and overcome their love for God. They were living, they were behaving as though they were walking in darkness, stumbling along. And so that's why John wants to make it crystal clear as well that the content of the message that we have to proclaim is that God is light. And in Him, there's no darkness at all. I shared with you uh, the quote from C.S. Lewis, who when he became a believer, he said, well, I believe that Jesus was real, just like I believe that the Son is real. I can see the evidence of it, but also because of the Son, because of Jesus, I can see everything else more clearly. Now, Last Sunday, we looked at two of the three tests that John provides for us so that we can do self-examination. We can actually know if we're walking in the light or in the darkness. And remember, there isn't any twilight. Two valid tests. And the first of those I referred to as the moral test. And the focus is on our obedience or our willful disobedience. 1 John chapter 2, verses 3-6, to John writes, And by this we know that we have come to know Him, if we keep His commandments. Whoever says, I know Him, but does not keep His commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in Him. But whoever keeps His word, in Him truly the love of God is perfected. John gives us an opportunity. An opportunity to do some self-examination. To see whether or not we truly are a Christian. And it's a test of righteousness. Now, the point John's making here is that the person who truly knows God will increasingly lead a righteous life. For God is righteous. Here's the principle. It's my, my principle of, of botany. If you're spiritually alive, you'll be growing. If you're not growing, 
You're dying. Now the second test that we need to look at in terms of our self-examination and reflection is what might be referred to as the social test. And once again, we saw John's use of the key phrase, and it actually came in verse 9, whosoever says, whosoever says he's in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. The old yet new commandment that John talks about. He's already pointed that to that in the gospel coming straight from Jesus himself. Jesus said, I have a new commandment to give to you. As I have loved you, you must love one another. Wow. Because when we think about it, how did Christ love us? Perfectly. Perfectly. And John's told him, Already, verse 6, that they have to walk as Jesus walked. And that was a walk of love. Brotherly love. It was part of the original message which had come to them from the very beginning. Remember the story that I shared with you? The example of love and who's our neighbor? That horrible, despicable, marginalized, despised Samaritan. The half-breed. That's the one who was the true neighbor. Now I'm sure by this point, the readers of John's letter are beginning to wonder if John, the apostle of love, has any love for them at all. He's not been pulling any punches. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word's not in us. The person who does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. Whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and doesn't know where he's going. They're, they're probably thinking, man, this guy's just boom, boom, just beating us to death. But remember, his threefold statement of pur- purpose was positive. He clearly states that his purpose is to bring joy, to keep them from sinning, and to help them know that they have eternal life. And so, in our text for today, he comes to them with words of assurance and direction. So let's go to his word today. I am writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. I'm writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I am writing to you, young men, because you've overcome the evil one. I write to you children because you know the Father. I write to you fathers because you know Him who is from the beginning. Now, I'm not duplicating. This is how John's actually writing it. He's emphasizing. He's duplicating. I write to you young men because you are strong and the Word of God abides in you and you've overcome the evil one. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life, is not from the Father, but it's from the world. And the world's passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. May God add his blessing to 
to our reading of His Word. Verses 12 to 14. I shared with you that I, I wasn't doing the duplicating. It's right there in the text. And actually they are beautifully structured. They're very poetic. And in the original language, they're actually rhythmic. And I'm sure you noticed that six times he says, I write the first time, three times in one tense. The second three in a second tense, I have written. And he uses three different terms of uncertain meaning. Little children, fathers, Young men? I say of uncertain meaning because the debate actually continues as to whether John is speaking in terms of physical age or spiritual maturity. Now my thinking at the present, and ask me next week and I might have changed, but because the evidence is kind of on both sides, kind of equal, but my, my thinking at the present time is that he's actually talking about just two stages of spiritual maturity and beginning with his term of endearment that includes all Christians, little children. And so what I see in this is in his words of encouragement, his words of reassurance, those words follow each of the groups that are addressed. Reassuring them that they do belong to God. They can enjoy the blessings of that relationship. And it has to do with their status. Their position before God. John wants to persuade them to abide in the love of God and to resist all of the temptations of the world. And so, as John's little children, his beloved little children, I mean, he's an old man at this point. And I can say that because he's at least 30 years older than I am at the present probably at this point. He's up there in the 80s to the 90s when he writes these letters. And he's writing them in this term of endearment, addressing all of the members of the church because they needed to hear once again that they are in the family. And how can they know this? John reminds them and he reminds us. Little children, because your sins are forgiven for His name's sake. They had made the decision to follow Jesus and accept Him as their Lord and Savior. And in so doing, Jesus became their advocate. He became the propitiation for their sins, the ransom. They had been taught, they had believed that He was in fact the only one who could do this for them. And through His person and work, he had completely forgiven their sin. Not only that, John comes back in verse 12 to say, you know the Father. And here is how these two statements are so important. These two promises, 
the forgiveness of sins and their knowledge of God, they mirror the promises of the new covenant as told by Jeremiah in Jeremiah 31, verses 31 to 34. I'm going to go back there and read those verses for you. Because I am more and more convinced every day that we need to know the Old Testament to understand the New Testament. And listen to how John is telling them right here what Jeremiah had said about the new covenant. He's saying, hey, with Jesus, the new covenant has come. Let me remind you. Here's what Jeremiah said. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. Husband. They were the bride. How is the church described? the bride of Christ. A new covenant relationship. Verse 33 of Jeremiah 31. For this is a covenant that I'll make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I'll write it on their hearts. I'll be their God and they shall be my people. And no longer shall one teach his neighbor and, his, and each his brother saying, Know the Lord, for they shall know me. From the least to them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. Do you hear the words of John? Little children, you know the Father. Your sins have been forgiven. This is the new covenant that Jeremiah was writing about. Now, listen. Is it a fair and gentle reminder that God is not the Father of every person? Yes, He's everyone's Creator. But He is not everyone's Father. For God to be your Father, you must have His Son Jesus as your Savior. The Lord of your life. Jesus in Matthew 18.3 says, Truly I say to you, unless you turn, that's repent, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. John then begins to address the two groups as to their spiritual maturity specifically. The first group are the young men. The babes in Christ. The term he uses could be male or female. They used masculine as a generic coverall just as we do today. He reminds them that they're in a fight. Moving from addressing the church as a whole to give attention to young believers who are growing in the faith, he commends them. He gives them reassurance because they are victors. They are young champions, he says. For Christ, they are engaged in a battle against Satan. Verses 13 and 14. 
And the evil system of the world, verse 15, and John is assured of the certainty of the victory. He states that in verses 13 and 14 because they have overcome. Nikao in the perfect tense. That means something happened at one point back in history and it has continuing effects. It means to conquer or achieve victory, but then to continue to enjoy the results of that. The victory came the moment that they believed in Jesus as their Son of God. The certainty of the victory is repeated for emphasis. And the source of their spiritual strength and vitality is noted right there in verse 15 in the middle of a threefold word of encouragement. They are strong, the word of God abides in them, and they have overcome the wicked one. One of the reasons I continually encourage you to be people of God's Word is that this is the secret and source of our strength. From the very first stanza of Psalm 119, we read, Blessed are the undefiled in the way who walk in the law of the Lord. Blessed are those who keep His testimonies, who seek Him with a whole heart. 119 verse 9. How can a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed according to your word. Verse 11. Your word have I hidden in my heart that I might not sin against you. Verse 16. I will delight myself in your statutes. I'll not forget your word. And let me tell you about Psalm 119. It was one of those acrostics using the first letter of the alphabet and each letter succeeding so that they could easily memorize that psalm and the importance of knowing God's Word. What about Ephesians chapter 6 where Paul gives us the armor of God? He writes, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. But then in verse 11, he continues, put on the whole armor of God that you might be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. And he concludes in verse 17 by saying, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. You see what he's doing? He's describing statuses at different levels. And the second group that he addresses are the great warriors of the faith, the spiritually mature, the fathers, the parents, the elders. They've walked with the Lord for many years. Their faith has been tried and proven. The Lord and they had been through much together. Yet some important things had remained the same. And John repeats twice, and I believe for emphasis, that they have known Him who is from the beginning. They'd known Him right from the very beginning. In other words, I think John's saying some of you were there and alive when Jesus was on earth. You saw the crucifixion just like I did. And you've been there. You were there at Pentecost. You've been there all along, right from the beginning. 
older in the faith, spiritually mature, possessing, possessing qualified spiritual authority and leadership, they understood very well that new is not always better and old is not always bad. Sometimes, and I'm going to be blunt, I don't know any other way to be, but sometimes what has killed a church more than anything else, and I've heard it in the last three and a half years since I've been here, we've never done it like that before. You know what? You do things the same way, you get the same results. Maybe we need to step outside the box a little bit. Keep the message the same because what's old is not always bad. The message is right. Keep the content. But maybe we need to think in terms of changing the delivery. Changing some of our methods of outreach. They had come to know as a settled conviction that Jesus, who had saved them, would sustain them. He was there from the beginning. He would be there at the end. They had come to know Him. They still know Him. And they would always know Him. Now in these first three verses, John provided the encouragement then necessary to heed the exhortation of verses 15-17. to We belong to God. We're part of His family. He's our Father and heaven is our home. So it's hardly conceivable that knowing this, we would give our affections to the world and set our heart on the fleeting and transitory things of the world. This stands in defiant opposition to God. You're intelligent and reasonable people. Just read and listen to the news and what the so-called leaders of our nation are saying and proposing. And so John provides us some guidance. It's the direction, the strategy that we should embrace. Now I've already shared with you something similar to this, but you need to know that more Americans than ever consider themselves irreligious. The percentage of Americans who call themselves Christian fell from 86% in 1990 to 77% in 2001, and it's gone even further down since then. The world constantly beckons us and woos us to come over to its side. Oh, you can still be spiritual, they say. Just don't take it too seriously. You can think of Jesus as important, but just not preeminent. He is a way, but not the only way. I mean, seriously. I mean, not too long ago, the Pope even said that there are other ways to get to heaven than by Jesus? That the gods of other religions are the same God of Christianity? That's heresy. That's not biblical. You can love God and also love the world. But John emphatically says, not so. In verses 15 to 70, John moves from assurance to warning. 
you are will determine how you live. But how you live will determine and give evidence to just who you are and whose you are. And these verses provide a a fitting commentary in terms of the temptation of Adam and Eve as well as the temptation of Jesus. For instance, John gives us three good strategies. The first, he says, is know that the world is treacherous. It's actually a command in verse 15. Do not love. Stop loving the the world. World. Mentioned six times in verses 15 to 17. The godless world. Certainly not the world as God's creation. God says He had created it good. After each of the days. Except when He created man. And then He said it's not good that we would be alone. Not humanity. A lot of people think of world in terms of humanity. For instance, John 3.16 For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. All of the people. But I think He's talking about the world as the evil organized system, satanic system that opposes God. John 16 verse 11 points to Satan as the ruler of this world. I, I have to stand back when I hear people say, well, you know, don't worry about the political situation. God's got it all under control. No, He doesn't. God has the end of the story under control. He has who's going to ultimately be victor, Revelation 20 and 21 and 22. But Satan is the ruler of this world. And things could get much worse for us, and I believe they're going to get much worse for us right here in the United States. I think that as Christians, we are going to face very real, very literal, very painful persecution. But then he says, secondly, know that the world is tempting. Verse 16, For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, and the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life, is not from the Father, but it's from the world. I think this verse might be on the top ten list of important verses in the Bible. It identifies in vivid terms the weapons the world uses to seduce humans to join its side. Weapons that reside in us. Because the enemy is within. They're the same three weapons that slew Adam and Eve in the garden. Genesis chapter 3 verse 6. The woman saw the tree. And she saw that it was good for food. The lust of the flesh. It goes on and say... She saw that it was pleasant to the eyes, the lust of the eyes. And it goes on to say, she saw and was told by Satan that it was desirable to make one wise, the pride of the flesh. 
the same three weapons. And they're used or were used to try to conquer Jesus in the, in the wilderness. I am one who believes that the temptations were very real. I think Satan came to Jesus and tempted him to take a shortcut to the kingdom of God. Hey, Jesus, if you command this stone to become bread, let me ask you a question. If you are living in a environment, a culture, a world that is absolutely poor, stricken, desperate and there's rocks all around that actually I've been told look like little loaves of bread don't you think that if somebody came along and said hey I can turn those into bread for you here have a loaf of bread don't you think you're going to follow that person that's the lust of the eye the flesh taking care of my bodily needs and then Satan came to him put him up on a high place and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and said, you can have all of this. The lust of the eyes. Jesus knew that for him, the kingdom didn't mean Satan giving to him what was rightfully his, remember? The ruler of this world. Jesus knew that it was to be God's kingdom eventually and that it meant the cross. And then... (laughs) The pride of life takes him up on the pinnacle of the temple. Says, hey, go ahead, jump down because the Bible says, he quotes the Bible. Satan does. The Bible says that he'll give his angels charge over you to keep you to keep you from getting hurt. And let me ask you this. If we announced that next week I was going to climb up there on top of that steeple bell and I was going to jump off And before I hit the ground, God's angels were going to swoop down and stop me and lay me down on the earth unhurt. Don't you think we would have some miraculous attendances for a while after that? If that indeed happened? Shortcuts. But the same three things. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. And that's why John says that third thing, that we need to remember that this world is temporal. I almost want to break into the song, this world is not my home, I'm just a passing through. My treasures are laid up somewhere beyond the blue. But this verse gives to a conclude brings brings his talk to a conclusion. John's argument is that there are two kinds of love. There are two kinds of life. There are two approaches to life. The side of Christ, the side of light, and the side of the world, the side of darkness. And he says, why side with the world? Why give your life to an empty imitation, a worthless fake, a temporary illusion? This world... This evil and deceptive system of Satan is continually passing away, he says. And its lust, mentioned again three times, is passing away with it. The darkness was on the run, chapter 2, verse 8. Now, the world is on the run, chapter 2, verse 17. 
So what remains? What lasts? What endures? And the answer is the one who's doing the will of God. The one who is doing the will of God. Whoever does the will of God abides forever. That's how our text that we read ended. Listen to what Jesus said in John chapter 5, verse 30 in regard to doing the will of God. I can of myself do nothing. This is Jesus talking. As I hear, I judge. And my judgment is righteous because I don't seek my own will, but the will of the Father who sent me. You probably have never heard the rest of the story, as Paul Harvey used to say. Uh, But here's the rest of the story about a man. He played quarterback at a small, obscure college, Northern Iowa. The National Football League had no use for him, so he was forced to play in Europe for a while, and then that Arena Football League here in the United States. He married an abandoned divorcee on food stamps. And he worked in a grocery store after being cut by the Green Bay Packers and he was making $5.50 an hour stocking shelves. But in 2000, he led the St. Louis Rams to the Super Bowl. And in 2001, he was named the NFL's most valuable player. His name is Kurt Warner. And he is a wonderfully committed Christian. Commenting on his playing days in Europe, he said this, I really got to know the Lord there because of all the temptations from the devil that are in Amsterdam. Drugs, women, promiscuity, everywhere you go. The devil tried to get me to fall. But I gave my life completely to the Lord. Obedience. When asked what he wanted his football epitaph to be, he simply said, this is what he wanted. And this was in World Magazine, February the 19th of 2002. He used his football platform to work for Jesus. That's what he wanted said about him. Someone once said, the world loves us in order to abuse us and destroy us. Jesus loves us in order to save us and use us. The world loves us to abuse us and destroy us. Jesus loves us to save us and use us. And it's all about obedience. He who does the will of God, He will abide forever. Let's pray.